You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with David Benatar, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Cape Town and also the author of a couple books. Most recent book is called The Human Predicament, A Candid Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. Another book called Better Never to Have Been, a book Second Sexism, and also a book about your hometown university and place of employment, University of Cape Town. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Well, you described this latest book, Human Predicament, as a work of unpopular philosophy. And I, I like that because philosophers occasionally try to write books of popular philosophy, which you know simplifies it because academic philosophy is often very difficult for even people who are academics, but outside of the philosophical profession to understand. And I think part of that is because, at least in the English-speaking world, we tend to focus on things within the tradition of analytical philosophy, and we kind of leave it to the continentals to ask the big questions. And so before we get into this book, maybe I thought you could talk a bit about why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose it's the case that philosophy in the English-speaking world has kind of shied away from the big questions like meaning of life and death and whether you should be born in the first place or whether you should continue to live? It's hard to know what the real explanation is. I think some philosophers in the analytic tradition have thought that these questions are just too inchoate, too unclear, too fuzzy to actually answer. I'm not that pessimistic about this. I'm pessimistic about lots of things. And some years ago, I actually wrote about the concept of what I call analytic existentialism. So you're looking at these big existential questions and you're looking at them through the techniques, sorry, the methods of analytic philosophy. And I think if you look back at analytic philosophy, you will find that there is at least some historic treatment of these questions, and it's certainly increased over recent years. So I'm hoping that the reputation of continental philosophers as people who look at these existential questions and analytic philosophers as those who don't will begin to fall away. I mean, I think what's in the work of folks like A.J. Ayer, I mean, they would say that the question about the meaning of life is like asking a question about the meaning of a banana, right? Something like that. Well, it depends. You'd obviously have to clarify what your terms are. And I think that's part of the problem with the question about the meaning of life. People say, well, when you ask what the meaning of life is, what do you mean by meaning? Because obviously the meaning of life is not something like the meaning of a particular word, like headset or microphone. So we're not using the word meaning in the same sense there. And I think that part of the task of the analytic philosopher is just to explain what we mean by those terms. Once we can begin to clarify the question, then I think we can begin to answer it in some way. It may not be a precise answer, but we can give a sensible answer, a thoughtful answer. Right. Now, I think if we were to summarize your work or this book in particular, it's kind of like life sucks and then you die, right? I mean, as we, we sometimes will say, right, as the summary of the half-empty view of things. You made this joke that the real pessimist is when he looks at a half-empty glass as it's actually all the way empty. Or mostly, almost all. Yeah. But I mean, th this seems, particularly in America, right, we tend to be optimistic and 
we tend to put a rosy picture on things. I was actually surprised when you said that we have this persistent optimism bias, and this describes sort of the human perspective in general. Maybe this is more pronounced in the English-speaking or particularly in American world, but isn't there also a pessimistic strain? I mean, this constant lack of satisfaction, right? The hedonic treadmill. Isn't the hedonic treadmill also persistent in the Western world as a match to this persistently cheery view of things? Yes, I think there's at least a few questions in what you've asked so far. So the one is whether this is a distinctly American phenomenon, this optimism, or whether it's more pervasive. And the evidence, at least as I read it, suggests that it is quite pervasive. That's not to say that every last human being is an optimist. Obviously, we know that's not the case. There are some pessimistic human beings. But as a species, the general trend is towards optimism. That may vary depending on cultural and other considerations. So I don't deny any of that. It's just that there's this general phenomenon. Uh, I think it's entirely possible that that coexists with this fact of something like the hedonic treadmill that you get a pleasure satisfied and then it doesn't remain satisfied for very long, a new desire comes in its wake, which will either be satisfied or not satisfied. I think that is the way the world works. But when people make assessments about the quality of life, they're often forgetting the extent to which these other facts of life actually apply. So I don't think that these two things are inconsistent with one another. You can have a very brutal kind of existence and yet be optimistic about it. And I think your perspective is that the pessimistic view is the more realistic view, that when you objectively take a look at life, it is perhaps more bad than good. I think that's true. I do want to say that I think people can be too pessimistic. So it's possible for people to think that things are worse than they actually are or worse than they actually will be. That is a mistake that's sometimes made. But if you're looking at the mistake that most humans on average make, is to overestimate how good things are, or will be, or were. But I mean, when we compare our lives to those of the animals, is ours better or worse? When we look at a chicken, for instance, and I think you mentioned this example, and you think of a chicken that's just confined to a cage for most of its life, I mean, in some objective sense, our lives are better, assuming we're not in Auschwitz, I guess. But you say that there's something unique about the human experience, which is an awareness of our suffering, or at least the prospect of death or our lack of meaning or lack of cosmic meaning, which makes it particularly bad. I think in some ways that's true. So I think the case of chickens is just an awful situation and a human inflicted one. They just have awful existence and it really is a life of suffering. But they probably don't think about a death, about their mortality. They're probably not thinking as far as we know about whether their lives have meaning. Now, I don't make those observations in order to mitigate their situation. I think for the kinds of beings that they are, their lives are filled with suffering. So this is not a comparison. It's not a, in a vicious kind of sense. I'm not engaging in a victim Olympics here and thinking that humans have it worse than chickens have it. I think in many ways, chickens have it worse than humans. But that doesn't preclude us from looking at distinct features of different kinds of beings' conditions. And one distinctive feature of the human condition is that many humans are aware of their mortality. They can engage with questions about the meaningfulness or meaninglessness of life. And so that does seem to be something distinctive, or at least operating at a particular level that is distinctive. Except some animals have some sense of those things. So, I mean, if you're going to say that life is more bad than good, I guess, you know, you need to have some kind of metric, right? Economists love to throw up these 
hypothetical metrics, right, that are generally rooted in some kind of hedonic view or some utilitarian view, right, where they'll have some axis of pleasure and pain, right? They, they usually don't think about meaning or lack of meaning. They focus on kind of pleasure and pain. What metric is the right metric to use when we're evaluating whether life is good or bad? Is it pleasure and pain? Is it meaning and meaninglessness or some combination of the two? I don't think we have to settle on one view. In fact, one of the things that I do in that book, The Human Predicament and elsewhere, is to say that irrespective of which view one takes about well-being, there's going to be more bad than good. So whether you take a hedonic view, whether you take a desire satisfaction view, whether you take an objective list view about the quality of life, whether you fold meaning into quality or treat meaning as a separate matter, on all of these views, you're going to find that there's more bad than good. So I've not linked this to a particular theory of well-being purposefully. Mm -hmm. I think that's just true of all these different views. And why would I narrow the point and then appeal to only some people, those that is to say the people who have that particular view of well-being? But you do make this distinction between subjective and objective, right? Yes. Uh, and so how, I mean, what does it mean to look at it from the objective view? Economists would probably start with the premise that subjective is everything. And then, you know, when you push them a little bit, they'll be forced to concede there's a difference between poetry and pushpin or whatever. But mm. is there a view from nowhere that allows us to have some objective perspective on the quality of life? Well, for at least some of these questions, you don't need the view from nowhere. You just need a view beyond the particular subject. Now, your question has a greatest force, I think, in the case of a hedonic view, where you think that this is about pleasure and pain. And then the common response is going to be, well, people know whether they're in pleasure or they're in pain, and surely then they're going to be the deciders as to whether there's more pain or pleasure in their life. But the point is that even on that hedonic view, it's possible for subjects to make mistakes about how much pleasure or pain there is. They may be able to tell you in the moment authoritatively whether they're feeling pleasure and pain and how much they're feeling, at least more authoritatively than anybody else. But it doesn't follow that when they're reflecting back, let's say, on the last 10 years or 20 years, that they're going to accurately recall how much pleasure and pain they respectively had. And when psychologists have actually looked at these things, by, for example, asking people in the moment, how are you feeling now? How are you feeling now? They used to do this with what was called a bleep in the old day. I imagine they do it with cell phones and things today. And then you ask retrospectively how much pleasure and pain you were having in the past. There's a mismatch between what people are reporting in the moment and what they report in retrospect when they're looking cumulatively at a period. So it's certainly possible for people to be mistaken even about subjective matters like pleasure and pain. But does that mean they're mistaken or does it just mean that we are privileging one metric over another? Because in the whole happiness economics literature, right, the question is always, do you take the area under the curve based on real-time hedonic subjective reports or do you focus on prospective or retrospective views of things? I mean, and the debate is which one is the more, quote, accurate, but is there one that is more accurate than the other? Well, it depends on what your theory of well-being is. Normally, hedonistic theories of well-being will be your life goes better the more pleasure it has and the less pain it has. Now, that's not a judgment about the moment. It's a judgment about your entire life. And about that, you can be mistaken. Now, let's imagine that there is some variant hedonistic view which privileges a judgment in a particular moment. It says, how do you now feel about the last 40 years? You feel that it was more pleasure, more pain. And then on this view, whatever you say in that moment goes. 
But the problem with a view like that is if they ask you five years later and you reach a different conclusion about the same 40-year period, you've got two right answers that are contradicting one another. So that looks like a very implausible view to go for. The regular hedonistic view, which just sums up how much pleasure and pain you have, perhaps deducts the one from the other, that's going to be by far the more plausible of the hedonistic views. And on that view, it's not just about what you say in a given moment. It's about what's true of your life as a whole or during a particular period. Because we have examples of people who go through childbirth, incredibly painful experience, but then afterwards they'll retroactively view it as one that is incredibly meaningful. Or people who go through uh, warfare, incredibly traumatic experiences, but then will find it very meaningful ex post. And then there's others that will chase after yachts and jewelry and then on their deathbed will say, you know, that was complete waste of my time. So should we not take that into account, the retroactive view of things? Or is there an element of, are we going to presume that some of those are self-deception and others are not? Well, you've introduced another variable. You've moved now away from quality of life to meaningfulness, either of life or a particular mm -hmm. event. And there are different views about what the relationship is between quality and meaning. Some people want to treat meaning as part of the quality of life. Others want to separate it out. I think there is some value in separating them, but I don't want to be committed to that view. I don't think we need to be committed to a particular view about this, because I think irrespective of which view we take, the issue you're raising is not going to present a problem. So what I can say is, let's imagine you go through a horrific experience, and then you see some meaning in it. Well, that meaning will overall make it more bearable, what you went through. But it doesn't follow from that that it wasn't bad. You've seen a purpose in it, the meaning in it, and it's improved your assessment of that. But it doesn't follow from that, that it transforms from a very bad thing into a very good thing. And again, if you denied this, then you'd have to say that if somebody, for example, were maimed by an assailant, and then they came to see some meaning in that afterwards, that in fact, this was a benefit that was bestowed upon them. We don't think that. It's not that the cloud ceases to be a cloud just because it's got a silver lining. The silver lining is nice to have. It's better than not having the silver lining, but it doesn't make it not a cloud any longer. And I think towards the end of the book, when you're talking about suicide, you introduced this two-dimensional graphic. And as a business school professor, I love you know anything you can put in two dimensions, right? Super easy to understand. And I think on one axis, you had kind of the objective quality of life. And the other was sort of the subjective quality of life. And I guess one question is, is being accurate and independent good? And I think you highlight there might be some asymmetry in terms of how you should be interacting with others, right? So if somebody perceives their quality of life to be less good than it is, then you can do a good thing by educating them about how good their life actually is. But if they think their life is better than it actually is, then perhaps you should be a little more hesitant to <laughs> help them come to a more accurate perspective. Is self-honesty, is that an independent good that we should pursue? Or is it depend on which direction it's mm. going to influence our subjective well-being? There are lots of complexities here, which I'm reluctant to oversimplify. So perhaps I should just point out a few of them. When you ask, is being a good? For me, it matters whether this is the being of somebody who already exists whether this is the being of somebody who could exist and we might bring into existence or might not bring into existence. I think that's one asymmetry. Mm -hmm. That's not the one you're speaking about here, but I just want to get that complexity out of the way. So if we're speaking about an existing person and we move into the question you were asking, we're asking, should we treat under-assessments and over-assessments of a person's quality of life in the same way? 
And my sense is that we shouldn't. So let's imagine somebody's more chipper than they should be, as it were, given their objective condition. They say should be in the sense that they're not tracking reality. Well, I don't think we should go and burst everybody's balloon. I don't think we should go and say, you should be a lot more miserable and I'm going to make you a lot more miserable. Because there's something sort of cruel and unkind about that. And I want to say that people should be allowed a certain level of distraction and sometimes even delusion. The problem is when it goes too far, when it goes so far that it now starts inflicting hardship on other people. And we know that there are all kinds of optimistic views that do exactly that. So many utopian worldviews that get imposed on other people cause vast amounts of misery. That's not a good thing. If you're laboring under the misconception that the class, the society is attainable, and that we can create that on earth and that everybody will be happy, you're going to cause a lot of misery along the way. And I think that your optimism should be punctured in a case like that. I'm also a little concerned when people are so optimistic about the quality of life that they'll bring more children into the world. That doesn't mean to say I go around telling everybody that they shouldn't. There are all kinds of reasons why I don't go around telling everybody that they shouldn't. But maybe that's a case where your optimism is going too far and you're now inflicting hardship on others through your optimism. But if it's affecting just you and it's making your life more bearable, I really think we ought to just let people be. Why would we puncture that? Well, it seems like the, I mean, the book is a bit of that. You talk about how there's a lot of books out there, self-help books, but there's very few books that are self-helplessness books. And you know, what that suggests is that people are trying to boost their optimism. They're trying to take actions to reduce their pessimistic view of the world. Is there a feedback loop between the subjective and the objective, right? Can your objective quality of life be affected by your subjective view of life? Again, I think there are two questions there. Let me deal with the second one first. I speak, in fact, in the book about a feedback loop. I think there is. I think if you think your life is better than it actually is, it actually objectively becomes a bit better. That doesn't mean to say it reaches the level you think it's at. It doesn't completely eliminate the gap between the subjective and the objective. But the subjective view actually makes it a little better. And similarly, when we're speaking about negative evaluation. So I think there is that feedback loop. So this is the obvious objection to raise, that aren't you puncturing people's positive delusions here by writing a book like this? And I think the answer is no, because I'm writing a book and I'm putting it out there. Nobody has to pick it up and read it. And if they start reading it, they can stop if they don't like it. So I'm not forcing this on anybody. And curiously, I think there's actually some comfort for people with pessimistic worldviews to finally be able to read a book of this kind. I've certainly had very many people, hundreds of people, even perhaps thousands of people who have expressed exactly this view. Often they thought they were alone. They find themselves in a society where it's not really acceptable to express negative views, pessimistic views. And then they find a kind of resonance in a book like this. So I'm not forcing this on anybody, but it's out there for those who are willing to take a clearer eyed view of the human condition. So you make this distinction between sort of quality of life and meaning of life. Why is it that meaning is so important to people? Why can't people just enjoy life and enjoy the hedonic experience and pursue pleasure? There are plenty of people that seem to be able to do this without losing an ounce of sleep over having some kind of meaning. Why is meaning so important to so many people? Well, I think it probably means it probably matters more to people who are suffering than people who are not suffering. 
But I don't think that even people leading relatively good lives are immune to the desire or the need for some kind of meaning. Perhaps I should clarify what I mean by meaning really is some kind of a point, some kind of a purpose, something often beyond yourself. So let's imagine somebody suffers, but they realize in war, let's say, let's imagine we've got a World War II veteran and they suffered a lot, but they've got the sense that their suffering was directed towards some purpose. In this case, a purpose that was achieved, which would, was to defeat Nazism and fascism. And they feel like that they contribute to that. Well, that's a kind of redemption, as it were. It's a way of giving a point to the suffering you went through. I didn't do this in vain. There's something good actually came out of it. And I think people find it easier to live with hardship that has a point rather than hardship that is pointless. You distinguish between these different levels of meaning. And I think a lot of people are looking for this cosmic meaning. And when they don't find it, they're sorely disappointed. And I think you highlight that, first of all, there is, <laughs> there, that's kind of a pointless pursuit, but that we shouldn't be terribly disappointed in that because we can find meaning at these more local levels. That's not quite the right way to characterize my view, because I think we should regret the fact that our lives don't have the broader purpose, the broader meaning. I just don't think that we should conclude from the absence of that kind of meaning that our lives have no meaning, because I think they do have meaning at more micro levels. We matter to other people. We can have a positive impact on people and beings around us. And I don't think we should pretend that isn't the case simply because our lives can't have a broader kind of meaning. So, I mean, this is the thing. I don't think an unqualified pessimism is the right way to go. Our pessimism or our optimism must be responsive to the particular question, the particular conditions. And that means you're going to be pessimistic about some things and optimistic about others. If you accept all my conclusions, the balance will shift from what it ordinarily is among people. In other words, there'll be more pessimism than there was before. But that doesn't mean to say there's nothing to be optimistic about. You can be optimistic that you'll have an impact on some people, a positive impact on some people. And so can I. Most people can. Yeah, but that level of meaning, I've always been puzzled by that because it seems to suffer from a composition fallacy, right? Like if I find my meaning in helping others and others find their meaning in helping me, then that seems kind of odd, right? If me simply helping myself is inadequate, I need to help others. And for them, helping themselves is inadequate. They need to help me. Wouldn't it be easier for us to just help ourselves? I mean, if we're not worthy enough to help ourselves, then why do things change when we just sort of swap roles? Well, that's not quite true because they could have other kinds of meaning. Think about what people do in their lives. Let's imagine somebody goes into a career, they become a doctor, for example. What they want to do is they want to alleviate suffering. They want to extend life, when, at least when that's what the patients want. They derive some satisfaction from their labors having a point, having a goal that is attainable. Think about the contrast between that, let's say, and Sisyphus, who's doomed to roll the rock up the hill, and when it gets to the top, it rolls down, and then you've got to roll it up again. That's activity that is pointless, and it's easy to see how somebody's going to get demoralized by that quite different in the case of the doctor who's actually helping existing people whose lives would be worse if he or she were not there to provide those kinds of services. Isn't that just me rolling the other guy's rock up? No, I don't think so because he's actually feeling better. He's recovering from a disease or having the symptoms of it ameliorated. This is not pointless. This is actually, this makes a massive impact on somebody's life. Now, I think your 
challenge has much greater force if we're thinking about whether we should be creating people. Because this idea that we should be creating people so that they can help others and others can help them, that does all look pretty circular. Why would you do that? But once we're here, that's another matter. Now you can either put your life to good use once you're here, or you cannot put it to good use. And it seems to me that the former is better. But if somebody tries to extrapolate from some broad view that from a cosmic perspective, I'm here to help you and you're here to help me, that's not satisfying. And I think that is a mistake to try to see some kind of broader cosmic meaning out of that. Right. Now, you referred to procreation as a human transmitted virus or the procreative Ponzi scheme. It, presumably, if people took you seriously, then humanity would just go extinct, right? Would that be an improvement to the world? Well, this is something I discussed in that earlier book, Better Never to Have Been. Of course, the first thing to recognize is humanity as a whole is not going to respond to my arguments by saying, oh, yeah, okay, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to stop procreating. There may be individuals, and there are individuals who have desisted from procreating on the strength of the arguments, but this is not something that humanity as a whole is going to do. So the first thing I think we should recognize is that this is not a zero-sum game. It's not a question that you either convert everybody to antinatalism or you have nobody espousing that view. Every person or every couple that's convinced of the antinatalist view and who therefore desists from having a child is going to spare somebody a lot of suffering and death. And so we shouldn't think that those small victories, as it were, those individual instances of preventing suffering and death are without value. They certainly have value. What I have to do, though, is I have to consider the theoretical position of everybody following my view. And then what I acknowledge in the book is that there would, in fact, be some suffering for the final generation that would be averted if they were not the final generation. But this, I don't think, is a reason not to accept the antinatalist view, because one way or another, there's going to be a final generation of people. It's either going to come sooner or it's going to come later. We don't know if it comes later exactly how it'll come about. We don't know if it's going to be an asteroid. We don't know if it's going to be climate change. We don't know if it's going to be a virus. We don't know exactly how that end will come. It could be quicker or it could be slower. But either way, there's going to be a lot of suffering. Under most scenarios, there's going to be a lot of suffering in for those final people. So the question is not, do final people suffer or don't they suffer? It's rather, does that happen earlier or later? And the antinatalists would say, well, all things being equal, it's better if it happens earlier rather than later. Now, I hasten to add, I'm not in favor of species side. I'm not in favor of killing off anybody, not individuals and not the whole species. So this would be, it would have to be human extinction through non-procreation as opposed to human extinction through killing. Right. And so to clarify, your objection to reproducing is that you believe it to be a selfish act, right? One that inflicts suffering on the next generation and is motivated primarily by a desire to use that offspring as a source of meaning? Not only that, there can be any number of reasons and sometimes no reasons. And half the people on the planet are so-called mistakes. Right. They weren't planned, <laughs> they're just here. So often it's just, there's no intention behind it. I think most of the motivations are so that I, the parent, can have the child rearing experience or I could have the child or to keep my parents quiet so that they've got grandchildren or because the nation needs more people. So there are a whole array of motivations that can be. 
Some of them might be described as altruistic. I'm doing my parents a favor by having the children. So it's altruistic in a sense, but what they leave out of the equation are the very crucial interests of the being they bring into existence. And that, I think, is what's problematic. In ordinary cases, we don't think it's acceptable to inflict the amount of suffering and death on somebody for our purposes or other people's purposes that we do through the case of procreation. And so is it because they overestimate the quality of life that their offspring will have, or is it that they overestimate the quality of life that people have in general? So is it that they fail to appreciate the suffering that people in general go through, or is it that they think for some reason that their children will be better than most people, in part because they're going to be wonderful parents? I think it varies from case to case, but the arguments that I give are more than one. There's an argument about how even if there were very little suffering in a life, it would still be a net harm to come into existence. So long as there was some harm, it would be a net harm because there's no interest in coming into existence. And if you come into existence, you're going to suffer something. So even on that kind of view, it would be a harm to bring somebody into existence. It wouldn't follow from that to wrong. If when you brought somebody into existence, it was a very minor harm, well, then perhaps that could be justified on the basis of the good that producing this child does to others. But when we factor in just how harmful it is to the child that you create and the person that child grows into, then I think it becomes very unseemly to try to justify that on the basis of the benefits that other people are going to derive. So this would be similar to an argument going back to the chickens for letting those chickens go extinct, because some people might argue, well, this chicken wouldn't exist if it weren't for domestication and if it weren't for these chicken farms, you release them into the wild and they're all going to get eaten by wolves. And so we're perpetuating this species of chicken. But your argument would be that existence is worse than non-existence because of the amount of suffering that these chickens go through. Yes. Again, there are lots of complexities there. I'm a little reluctant just to gloss over them entirely. The chickens, especially the ones that are so-called factory farm, that live in the very intensive conditions, their lives are really awful. And it may be that they're better off dead. That doesn't mean to say I think euthanasia is the response because the appropriate response is actually to alleviate their conditions, make the conditions better. But the argument that bringing a chicken into existence, even though it's going to suffer like this, is better somehow for the chicken, I've always found to be a bizarre argument in defense of eating chickens or other animals. It really would be better for them if they never existed in the first place, rather than to be brought into existence, treated in these appalling ways, and then killed a few months later. But a lot of people will say, look, that's chickens. Many humans lead very different kinds of lives. And I think we do need to recognize among humans, there are worse lives and better lives. The interesting thing is, really doesn't matter how bad things get for humans, they still want to procreate. And they often do procreate. In quite appalling conditions, people are trying to procreate. And what that suggests is that things can be pretty bad and humans can still think that it is acceptable to create a child. One example I often think about is the case of anesthesia. So our lives are certainly made better by the existence of anesthesia, but that's a relatively new discovery, effective anesthesia. If you go back 200, 300 years, you don't have that. And for generations before that, people were producing children in the full knowledge that if that child had a toothache and needed to have a tooth extracted or had gangrene and needed to have the limb amputated, that this would all be done without anesthesia. And yet humans were just going about this procreative activity. This tells me this is a species that isn't very good at making these kinds of judgments. 
about what can warrant bringing a child into existence. Now, it's easy for us to look backwards now and say, oh, but we do have anesthesia now. The point is much of the planet doesn't. There are lots of people that don't have access to that. They don't have access to palliation when they're suffering extreme conditions. And even those of us who do have access to anesthesia and palliation are not spared awful diseases filled with suffering and decrepitude. So it may be the future generations will look back on us and think, wow, that was really awful without seeing what's awful in their condition. This is very typically human to not see these things. Now, the key difference between the chickens and the humans is that humans always have the option to pull the plug. And, you know, you spend a considerable part of the book talking about suicide. And it's actually, I guess, surprising that there are so few suicides. We now talk about suicide epidemics, but I guess it's astonishing that people are so reluctant to take their lives, even when confronted with the prospect of interminable suffering. In some ways, yes. But I do want to, I want to try to qualify what's being said here now, because I do that very carefully in the book. I don't want people, let's say, who may be suicidal to think that because they're suicidal, I'm encouraging them to kill themselves. I actually think that most people who are suicidal have a mental problem. They're not seeing certain things. I've seen this in many cases of people who've attempted suicide, who I know, or who've succeeded in suicide. They often have a overly negative view of themselves, of the quality of their life. And so this is not a recommendation for mass suicide by any means. At the same time, I think that our society is too judgmental of suicides. It wants to pathologize them too often and wants to morally condemn them too often. So what I try to do in the book is to speak about the relatively small set of cases where I think that suicide is both rational and morally permissible. But I don't think it's a generalized solution to the human predicament. Because as you said earlier, life sucks and then we die. But perhaps a better way of saying it is that we caught between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> because life is filled with harshness and unpleasantness and suffering. But death is also a harm to us. There are rare occasions, relatively rare occasions, when death is a lesser harm than continuing to live. But I don't think if you took your average human in the midst of their life, I'm not talking about the terminal stages, but in the midst of their life, I don't think that the equation works that way. I don't think that death, it's going to spare you the suffering, but it's going to come at a very, very high cost, namely your annihilation, the prevention of all the goods you could have attained later, and the inability to generate any more meaning. So I want to be careful that in conveying the fact that there's a nuance here to my views on suicide. It's not a blanket endorsement, but it's also not a blanket criticism. We need to look very carefully at specific circumstances. And I think anybody who's contemplating suicide must not just be wrapped up in their own head. It's very easy for people to think they've got it all right. This is the kind of occasion, I think, when you want to be able to speak to somebody, a trusted person, somebody who's not going to commit you to an institution somebody who's going to be able to engage with your concerns in a rational way, serve as a kind of sounding board for you. That, I think, is crucial. And why is it that we are so afraid of people who commit suicide or contemplate committing suicide? Why has it been criminalized and viewed as a sin by so many religions? Well, I think the answer to that second question is more complicated. I don't think the answer to the second question is the same as the first formulation. It was a time, for example, when all subjects were property of the king so or the queen. If you took your own life, you were effectively 
robbing your sovereign of property. Now, we find this kind of view quite quaint today, but that was at least part of the reason for criminalization. But even that would only make sense if that person was positively contributing to the wealth of the king. So presumably there's a certain point where they become a burden to the king or the state, and the king shouldn't care, should be encouraging it, right? Yeah, but it might be that the law is made for the average case, not for the extreme case. So I'm not sure that upends the, that, that particular rationale. But the first formulation of your question we assume that there is something unsettling to us about a suicide. And I think there are lots of hypotheses we could have for why that's the case. And first of all, there's this very powerful life drive that guides most people. And it's what explains why they will put up with so much, because death is going to be worse for them. At least that's what the life drive is telling them. And when we're confronted with somebody who has actually taken their own life, there's something unsettling about that, because this is a obviously a person who's overcome that drive. That's one hypothesis. Another is that the suicide really tells us that things are much worse than we think they are, and there may be something threatening about that. So there are different explanations, I think, that we can offer. But in other cases, it may just be a sadness. I've certainly experienced great sadness at people I know who've taken their lives very often because they have had insufficient confidence in themselves. They've thought they're worthless. They thought they're useless. They've underestimated their capacities. And if only they could have seen themselves the way other people saw them, they might have had the drive to continue living and to do good things. I think it would benefit them and it would benefit others. But at the same time, again, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just remarking on the tragedy of that situation. But, and you mentioned also that people flock to optimists and they tend to shy away from pessimists. Do people see pessimism and optimism as infectious? They're afraid that when you spend time with someone who is pessimistic, that it will reduce the subjective quality of their life? That's one possibility, but it might be that people just don't like to hear bad things. They don't like to hear what the pessimist wants to say. I think often there's a kind of stirring inside. People feel the weight of life. They feel the suffering. They're seeking a way to cope with that. And that's exactly what makes them seek out the self-help. So, yeah, I think there are multiple explanations. I wouldn't want to reduce these things just to one motivation or one account. I think there are different things that go on, often in different people. Different people have different motivations. And sometimes even in a given person, there can be more than one dynamic at play. I think it's a pity that people are so taken in by the optimists. You think about the snake oil salesman, drink this and you'll be fine, or follow these life lessons and you'll be fine. There's often not wisdom in that. It's often a kind of a scam, which is not to say that there's nothing that can be said sometimes to help people. So it's not that I'm opposed to people who are in a dark place seeking help, but I think more often than not, people are drawn to unwise help rather than to wise help. Well, I mean, I think one of the key nuances in the book is that there's a big difference between not creating a life and taking a life, yes. right? And so I was wondering if you could dig into that, because it would seem that if there is something fundamentally wrong with creating someone and giving them a life of suffering, then taking that life of suffering away from them should be an act of kindness. So how do you, I mean, of course, I'm, you have a whole chapter on this, right? But could you tell us, I mean, what is the difference? Why is it that once the life is created, 
that the calculus changes? Because I think nobody has an interest in coming into existence. You don't harm anybody if you never create them. They don't care less. They never can care less or more. So there's no interest in coming into existence. But once beings do exist, I think they have an interest in continuing to exist. And so then there's something that has to be defeated. And sometimes that interest in continuing to exist can be defeated. There are occasions, but the greater the interest in continuing to exist, the worse your life would have to be in order to defeat that. Now, I don't think this is binary. I don't think it's either you don't exist or you do exist, because there's a process of coming into existence as you are gestated. And then when you're born, as you grow, I don't think, for example, that the interest in continuing to exist of an eight-month fetus is the same as a one-year-old child. And I don't think the interest of a one-year-old child in continuing to exist is the same as a 20-year-old person. So there's a gradation here and there's a nuance. It's not binary, but we can simplify the point by saying that if you don't exist, if you've not yet come into existence, there's no interest in coming into existence. But if you are already existing, there is some interest in continuing to exist. How much there is will depend on an array of things, including how sophisticated you are, how old you are, what kind of projects you have for the future. There will be an array of considerations. And of course, death is a big topic in your book. It seems like if life is one of suffering, then a longer life would be a bad thing and you'd want it to be shorter. But if you have an interest in living and fending off annihilation, then a longer life would be better than a shorter life. And best of all would be immortality, right? We have to add into both all the claims, the all things being equal. So all things being equal, a longer life is better than a shorter life. But if your life is just racked with misery and suffering and you're crying out in pain, well, then longer is not better. So it, because you're caught between a rock and a hard place, you're having to consider how bad death is and what the quality of your life is and will be if you do or don't die, or if you don't die. If you do die, you will end up a quality of life afterwards. But I mean, you try to address the Epicurean position, right? Which is that death doesn't matter. And you say it does matter, right? And you talk about the harm of death, right? So it's not just that life sucks and then you die, but dying kind of makes life suck even more, the fact that you die. And I loved your sort of attempt to point out when exactly the harm occurs, right? Is the harm occurring at the moment of death? Is it occur throughout one's life of anticipation of death? So is the existence of death make life itself worse? Or is it just that death makes things bad when it happens? Well, I think the fact that we die, that we're mortal, that is one of the harms that you're inflicting on somebody when you create them. It's inescapable. Whatever else they may be able to escape in their life, they're not going to escape death. So that is a bad. Now, the Epicureans, as you correctly point out, deny that death is a bad. And as I say in the book, I don't think there's a knockdown argument to show that they're wrong. There's a reason why that argument has persisted for thousands of years. But sometimes when matters are complicated, we don't have a knockdown argument one way or the other. And so what we have to do is we have to balance up considerations in favor of one position and in favor of another position and against their respective conditions. And when I do that, I find the Epicurean view left wanting. But in doing that, I have to face certain challenges, like questions about the time at which death harms. So that's just one of the numerous challenges that I have to engage. But I would encourage your listeners to 
read that part, assess it for themselves. Well, I mean, the alternative is immortality. And we've got a lot of folks who are chasing after immortality, actual immortality, not metaphorical mm. immortality, right? And I think you engage Bernard Williams's claim that this would get boring after a while. But there are other reasons why immortality might be bad or good. Could you talk a bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so I think it's very easy to think of lots of ways in which our current lives, but just made immortal, would be very bad. So if we just continue to age and age and age, as the ancient Greeks imagined, then you just become worse and worse off, but you'd never die. And that would be terrible. It would also be terrible in many ways if you were to be immortal and all your close friends and family were mortal and they were to die. We constantly have these heartbreaks and have to forge new families and watch them die, and that would be awful. And if everybody were immortal, then there may be a problem with housing everybody on the planet. What would we do with all these people? So it's easy to think of all these ways in which immortality could go wrong. I think that if immortality is desirable, it's desirable under a very specific set of circumstances. So there aren't too many people, for example. One way to do that would be if you take the excellent of life, you'd have to have it before you begin to have children. So let's imagine it's prepubertal. And so you're either going to have children or you're going to live forever. You can make the choice. So, and then that would be a way around that. It's a theoretical way around the overpopulation problem. And then you'd also, I think, have to have the option of dying if you wanted to. Because if you opted for immortality and then things just got worse than you could bear, then you would be in this eternal prison. And that would be awful. So one of the conditions I think that would make immortality desirable is if you could have the way out if you wanted it. Now, this is all, of course, completely theoretical because we're not going to be immortal. Nobody's going to be immortal. Maybe people will live for a lot longer than they're living now, but true immortality is never going to happen. The belief that it is is just another kind of optimism. So I'm probing their theoretical views, but these are not views that I think have practical import. So for these life extension folks, it mm. seems like this is like a opiate of sorts, right? That is helping them to alleviate their suffering or the part of their suffering that is related to their prospect of mortality. Yeah, and that's fine. Again, it depends on whether this now verges over into dangerous territory. But if you're coping with your death anxiety by taking vitamins or doing whatever it is that you think is going to extend, restricting your caloric intake, whatever it is that you think is going to extend your life, then great, go ahead and do that. It isn't a free will, but it should be. And that's exactly what you should be free to do. But if it's going to now spill over into some kind of dangerous activity, uh, impose hardships on others, uh, then I think that your delusions need to be checked. Now you talk about being a pragmatic pessimist or a pragmatic optimist. What does that mean? I mean, is it primarily about being clear-eyed? Is it primarily about confronting honestly the amount of suffering that you experience and the amount of suffering that those who you bring into the world might experience? What does it mean to be a pragmatic pessimist? Well, let's look at the pessimism first. So the pessimism, I think, is the general broad pessimism, not the total pessimism, but the general broad pessimism is a product, I think, of the clear-eyed view. If you look at the human condition realistically, you're going to reach unhappy conclusions about all the things I've said you ought to reach unhappy conclusions about. But now the question is, well, what do you do with that information? Do you just become morose? Do you withdraw? What do you do with this information? And I think one mistake would be to become overly morose about it, to derive no joy, because then what happens is 
there's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy there where you're actually making, there's another feedback loop, you're making it actually worse for yourself than it would be if you didn't have that kind of response to the pessimism. At the same time, I don't think you should fall into optimism because now you're going to lose the clear-eyed view. So what I'd say is preserve the clear-eyed pessimistic view, but be pragmatic. Say to yourself, well, I can still laugh at jokes and tell jokes and enjoy food and enjoy lovely weather and sport or whatever it is that that you may enjoy. And these can be distractions from, temporary distractions from your clear-eyed view of the world, but they're not an abandonment of your clear-eyed view. And they actually make your life better because you have that perspective and you have that approach and you probably will make the lives of other people better as well by having that pragmatic response to your pessimism. Is there a difference between being pessimistic about the human condition and pessimistic about one's own condition? When I'm feeling particularly pessimistic about my own life, I will spend some time reading about the Holocaust and the Gulag and the trenches of World War One and <laughs> 30 Years' War and gladiators. And that just puts me in a wonderful mood. <laughs> it makes me appreciate the eggs and bacon that I have for breakfast and the beautiful weather I have in California. And yet a lot of people, when they expose themselves to things, you read in the newspaper, all the horrible things that are happening in the world, it makes people anxious, it makes people pessimistic, it makes people very unhappy in their current condition. So is there a difference between the people who, when exposed to the suffering of mankind, feel worse and those who maybe feel better, not because they feel good about what's happening to the rest mm. of the world, but they can appreciate their own luck, I suppose, in contrast to what they see as the general condition of mankind. I wonder whether you're comparing two different kinds of person there who would be making two different kinds of comparison. So obviously one way to make yourself feel better about your own condition is to recognize that there've been a lot of people and there are a lot of people who have it a lot worse. And a lot of people employ that technique I think there's something to that technique, but if as a result of that, you lose sight of all the bad things in your life, you think, well, I've just got it absolutely fine. And because there are all these people who are worse off, what you need to recognize is many of the people who have it worse off than you have it a lot better off than some other people. And also you're leaving part of the equation out is all the people whose lives are going better than yours. So a fair assessment is going to recognize where the quality of your life fits on a spectrum, let's say, of all human lives, perhaps all other lives as well. And invariably, there will be people who are worse off than you and better off than you. I think the people who are going to get morose about reading all these things about human and other suffering, those are people who are not worrying specifically about themselves. I mean, they worried about life. They worried about humanity or life more generally. And reading these things is just providing them with more and more evidence of how bad things are. Now, again, it's possible for people to be mistaken about this, to think you open up the morning newspaper and you read about this murder and that robbery and this earthquake, you can get a misleading picture of how bad things are because they're not reporting in the same way as all the earthquakes that didn't happen and the robberies that didn't happen, and the murders that didn't happen. And so it's possible to be misled by opening up the newspaper and reading those things. But it's also possible to look at the data and to see just how much suffering human lives contain and other lives contain. You can get a more accurate view. I recognize there can be excessive pessimism in addition to excessive optimism. By the way, if you read a bit about pigs, you might not be so happy about the bacon. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But I source my bacon from 
only farms that I know. But I guess the question is, is there a cost of erring in one direction that is greater than erring in the other direction? Should we seek objectivity when evaluating our lives, or should we fear being mistaken in one direction more than the other? I remember one time I I was sick and I uh, thought I have a serious disease, and I went to my doctors, and the doctors told me that everything was fine and I had nothing wrong. And I was so concerned about deluding myself (laughs) into thinking that I was fine that I convinced myself that I was actually very ill. And then I realized later that that was an egregious mistake and that I was so concerned about being too optimistic that I made myself too pessimistic. If we're trying to evaluate the cost of error, should we view them symmetrically or should we be more concerned about erring in the optimistic direction relative to the pessimistic direction? I don't think that one size fits all here. I don't think it fits all people, and I don't think it fits all circumstances. There are terrible things that have happened from people being excessively pessimistic, and there are terrible things that have happened from people being excessively optimistic. So if you think there's nothing wrong with you, and you don't go and see the doctor, and what you have isn't caught on time, and you die as a result, that's too much optimism. If you have too much pessimism, and you worry yourself into the grave, that's too much pessimism. So there's a mean that is required here. And different people may have different tendencies and they may need to check their tendencies. But again, because the appropriate judgment of optimism and pessimism is really very context dependent, it's dependent on what you're optimistic or pessimistic about. It may be that somebody who's generally too pessimistic is not too pessimistic about a given matter. And this is why I'm very reluctant to give generalized advice. The most generalized advice I would give is to assess evidence look at arguments and evidence, look at it as carefully as possible to evaluate it, be open-minded, but not too (laughs) open-minded. So open-minded as they say that your brains are on the floor. There are many people who fall into that category. And then ask yourself, how do I now cope with reality as it most plausibly seems to be? Now, we've seen a decline in fertility across most of the world, developed and developing. We're even in Parts of Africa, which saw a huge rise in fertility, are now seeing a decline in fertility. But it seems like the motivations here are mixed, right? So some people would say that the decline in fertility is motivated primarily by selfish reasons, right? Where people are concerned about their careers and they don't want to be distracted by the responsibilities of childcare. And that's a critique that many have lodged. But there are plenty of people, at least here in certain parts of the United States who say that they don't want to bring someone into the world because they're concerned about things like global warming. And so they don't seem to be motivated by a desire to avoid the suffering of their offspring, but rather are concerned about being a drag on the rest of the world. So what do you think lies behind the decline in fertility? If the decline is motivated by the wrong reasons, is it still something that you find encouraging? I think you've correctly pointed out that there are lots of different explanations. It's not, again, one answer that's true all over the place. I think the environmental argument that you give is sometimes about the interests of the being you would create. So some one form of the environmental argument is if I were to create this child, what kind of a world would it inhabit? And I don't want to do that to the child I would create. There's another environmental argument which can coexist with the first one, 
which says if I create a child, that child is going to be a carbon emitter and will contribute to the problem. That is what I call a misanthropic argument for antinatalism. It's when you worry not about what creating a child will do to that child, but what creating a child will do to other beings, already existing people, independently existing people, other animals. And I don't think those two arguments are mutually exclusive. I think they can coexist. And so if somebody is motivated more by one or more by the other, I think the net effect if they don't have a child is a good one. So do you think that this pessimism movement <laughs> that you're encouraging, what are the prospects? Like you said, people don't rush out to buy books that are anti-self-help. Do you think that that's going to change? Do you think people will become more interested? I mean, look, Schopenhauer was never a bestseller, right, in his day. Do you think that there will be a separate section in the bookstore for the uh, anti-self-help? I don't think so. And there's something tongue-in-cheek about that observation yeah. that I made about self-helplessness, because right. I think one way of helping yourself is by having a clearer view of reality. If you think mm -hmm. about how many human problems are caused by delusions of one kind or another? How much misery is caused by people who are really not interested in the facts? They're immune to evidence. They're immune to reasons. They hold preconceived ideas. They're not willing to change their minds. This causes an immense amount of misery. And so I think that one way in which people can really help themselves and help other people is by having that more rigorous scientific view of what to believe and what not to believe. But now, does that mean it's going to catch on? Does it mean it's going to become popular? No, no. And so that's what I mean by my book being an instance of unpopular philosophy. Again, that's also somewhat tongue-in-cheek because it is written in an accessible style. I don't like it when philosophers write in ways that non-philosophers can't read, and even worse, when other philosophers struggle to read. So I think that if you've got something important to say, you need to say it clearly. That doesn't mean dumbing down, but it does mean saying it in a way that an intelligent layperson could read and understand. So in that way, my book is accessible publicly and popularly, but it's not going to defend a popular view. But I, I've got an expectation that large numbers of people will follow this advice, but I'm not offering it because I think large numbers of people will take it. I'm offering it because I think it's the right advice to give. And more seriously, I mean, do you think that philosophers have more to offer the general public than they're currently providing? It seems like most of the books that you read on how to live and how to think about one's life are coming from psychologists now and mm. far fewer from philosophers. Do we need to rethink the role of philosophy both in the university and in popular culture? That's a very big topic. I do think that philosophers have historically sort of been underappreciated, sometimes with good reason. But I think there is a certain expertise, a certain skill set that comes with a rigorous training in philosophy that's often not appreciated. People won't instruct the cardiac surgeon on how to do cardiac surgery, or at least most people won't. But lots of people will think they have got every one of the tools that the academic philosopher has. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that academic philosophers can't be wrong about things, but what it means is we need to engage those arguments. There might be arguments there that the broader public would be well advised to consider and engage in a serious way. And I think a lot of that has been happening in recent decades, much more certainly than before. 
Well, David, thanks so much for joining me. The book is called The Human Predicament. And of course, don't forget the other books, Second Sexism and Better Never to Have Been. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.